I'm entombed in the bowels of the worst prison in the state of California. From the depths of my soul, in the shades of hell, I manifested art. This is a podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude Project at Queen Mary University of London. It's one of a series looking at places and experiences of solitude and how these have changed over the centuries. Each podcast has been curated by a member of the project research team and draws on contributions from a wide network of collaborators. I'm Heta Howes and I'm part of that wider network. I've been in prison for 30 years and it's a history whose nightmare I'm trying to awake from. When you're buried alive, you dig for your life. Digging where you delve in solitary confinement into the unconscious, I found a pool of mythic images and painted them with my own DNA, i.e. a brush fashioned out of my own hair. In previous episodes of this series, we've looked at the solitude of gardens and the city, as well as places and experiences of spiritual solitude. But this episode, number five, is about the solitude of the prison cell and solitary confinement. We'll hear from Shokafei Saki, who was held in solitary confinement in Iran, from the poet Andrea Brady, talking about the beat poet Bob Kaufman, and the philosopher Lisa Gunther. Each episode is curated by one of the members of the research team, drawing on the wider network of project collaborators. And joining me now is the curator of this episode, Charlie Williams. Charlie, the solitariness of this cell is quite different to the other kinds of solitude we've been thinking about, isn't it? That's right. Solitary confinement is obviously, it's one of the most extreme forms of solitude we can really imagine. It's an extreme condition of social deprivation and also kind of perceptual monotony, often in a grey, empty space. And this alone we know can have profound effects on the human psyche and the body. But the other essential part of solitary confinement is that someone outside the cell door also holds the key. And it's this power relation and ultimate sense of powerlessness that really makes the experience of solitary confinement an experience of solitude very different from any other we've looked at so far. We heard there in the opening few moments from a film by Mike Dibbs about Donny Johnson, voiced, of course, by the fabulous Stanley Tucci. Charlie, can you tell us a bit more about Donny and about the film? Well, it's an extraordinary film. Donny Johnson is a prisoner and he's still in prison. And he's in prison for murder and spends over something over 20 years in solitary confinement. But the film is told through a correspondence and friendship that Johnson establishes with a psychoanalyst in Mexico and tells the story of how Johnson turned to art as a way of exploring his time in solitary confinement and how he was able to create these kind of extraordinary pieces of art using materials he was able to gain access to from the prison kitchen and out of a paintbrush made from his own hair. I took my ponytail in hand and twisted about three inches of it into a hard twine and cut it off upon the right angle of the cell door edge. I use that brush to this day. From one end to the other, it is exactly this length. 
I started with M&Ms by putting a couple of drops of tap water on each candy and swirling a brush over its surface until the dye raises off. These colors are some kind of synthesized sugars, so they're a bitch. Red and yellow don't make green with this stuff. It all turns brown. In short, it's an unforgiving medium. If you'd like to find out more about Mike Dibbs' film or about Donny Johnson himself, you can visit our website, where the philosopher and campaigner Lisa Gunther has written a blog post about him. Just search for Solitude's Queen Mary. When I spoke to Lisa, I began by asking her about a phrase she uses in her writing to describe the experience of solitary confinement, living death. I asked her where that phrase comes from and why it's an important one for the research and work she's been doing. This is a term that I came across in testimonies from prisoners in solitary confinement in the US starting in the 19th century. So some prisoners used that exact phrase, living death, to describe the feeling of being enclosed, almost buried alive in a windowless stone box. And in some of these early penitentiary cells, the only light that came into this stone cell was from the top, from a from a small window called a, a god's eye, sort of like a skylight. And so people literally felt like they were interned in a grave and that they were consigned to death, but still somehow kept living. Other prisoners have described this experience as living in a black hole or feeling like the world has ended, but somehow you are still surviving or feeling just profoundly disconnected from the world so that somehow your Biological life continues, but you're no longer connected to ongoing lives of others. It's really interesting for me because this is going to sound like a complete aside. Um, I promise it's not. I work on medieval anchoresses and anchorites, so religious recluses Mm. in the Middle Ages. And um, that state is described as a living death. The idea being that um, sort of women or men would voluntarily put themselves into a small cell and the death rites would be read over them and then they would sort of... Wow. be cut off from the rest of the world forever. However, it sounds like for, you know, anchorites and anchoresses, there were still windows, there's still sort of chat with the outside world through the window every day. Whereas the sort of living death you just described there is much more absolute and of course not voluntary. Yes. And I think that's crucial. So I think for spiritual reasons, one might seek out a kind of death and resurrection. And even the rationale of putting people in solitary confinement in the early penitentiary system was to force them into a kind of death of the criminal soul and a rebirth of a new citizen, a redeemed soul. But you can't force a person to undergo redemption. And so I think even though some religious practices might use some of the same techniques of isolation and withdrawal from the world and even understand what they're undergoing as a kind of death, the meaning of that death is so different from the meaning of a death that is forced upon you with the expectation that you will sort of reboot as a new and improved person. You've talked about there being three waves of solitary confinement, specifically in the United States. And just to give us some kind of historical context here, could you give us a bit of an overview about those three waves 
and what they are. Sure. So the first wave is what I've been calling the early penitentiary system. And this was a punitive institution grounded on religious and specifically Christian principles that you could force someone to do penance and to become penitent by putting them in a an extremely isolated space where the world and its corrupting influences melt away and the person is forced to reorient their soul towards God and to reemerge not only a better Christian, but also a better citizen, a better worker, and so on. So we have all kinds of religious and economic and political aspirations bundled into this early penitentiary system. In the early penitentiary system, right away, wardens noticed what they called in the language of the day, dementia, monomania, basically mental illness in the prisoners who had been isolated for long periods of time in this sensory deprivation as well as social deprivation. And the practice waned somewhat. There were a few lawsuits in the United States that questioned the constitutionality of solitary confinement, but did not condemn it, absolutely. But it was in the mid-20th century when the U.S. was fighting in Korea and eventually in Vietnam, and they got wind of these techniques that allegedly China was using to brainwash prisoners of war. And they funded massive projects with military and Department of Defense funding to figure out how you could, with sort of more contemporary psychiatric behavior modification practices, break someone down and rebuild them differently. And so the the ethos is more or less the same. You want to take someone that you don't like the way they are behaving, break them down or bring them to the point of death, and then reboot them or resurrect them. But the framing logic that makes this intelligible is not religious, but rather scientific and psychiatric in this second wave. And many political prisoners, many activists and revolutionary fighters in the Black Liberation Army, in Puerto Rican resistance movements, in the American Indian movement, were targeted for this kind of behavior modification. So in the 1970s, there was a series of lawsuits, prisoners' rights lawsuits, that were successful in stopping many of these programs. But behavior modification continues in contemporary prisons. Uh, The sort of punishment and reward system is the bread and butter of of prisons and jails in the U.S. and beyond. But where we see, I think, a distinctly third wave of solitary confinement emerging in the U.S. is with the rise of the supermax prison or the warehouse prison. And here, I would argue that behavior modification is no longer the aim. Rather, the aim is incapacitation and the management of a population that may be marked as dangerous, they may be Um, labeled as gang members or as disruptive to the order of the institution. The practice is not that much different. It's still putting someone in a box and leaving them there for years, even decades. 
but the rationale and the ethos has changed. It is more like putting someone on ice and trying to reduce their destructiveness rather than changing their behavior and modifying them into a different kind of person. I see. And then, so now we're in this third wave and um, the figure that I found for the approximate number of incarcerated men, women and children held in solitary confinement in the States was 80,000. That figure seems absolutely astonishing to me. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so difficult to actually get a very accurate count of the number of people in solitary because there's no clearinghouse for this information. Not all prisons, jails, and detention centers are required to keep record of how many people are in solitary and for how long. But this was the figure that emerged in a series of Senate hearings a few years ago on solitary confinement. And we have to remember that the U.S. is also the world's largest incarcerators. So 2.4 million people are behind bars in the United States. And a disproportionate number of those prisoners in solitary confinement, but also I think generally, are African-American. Um, and you've linked that with a deeper history of slavery in the United States really revealingly. Can you tell us a little bit about that? If we look at the history of the early penitentiary system, this emerged in the northern United States, the Northeast, so Pennsylvania and New York. But as this penitentiary system, which was targeting the individual and trying to redeem this individual, as this system was emerging in the South, plantation slavery continued, even intensified in the early 1800s, the early 19th century. And the techniques of trying to single out an individual and change their soul were not, by and large, applied to African-American slaves or people of other races in Southern prisons. It was only when the 13th Amendment abolished slavery and indentured servitude, except for those who are duly convicted of a crime. So that is the formulation of the 13th Amendment that only partially abolishes slavery, that we began to see the rise of prisons in the U.S. South in former slave states. And some of these prisons were literally built on top of former plantations. So they basically just changed the name from Angola Plantation to Angola Prison, which is now still running as Louisiana State Penitentiary. So if we look at the early penitentiary system, then I think that the ideal or imagined target of this kind of redemptive but coercive intervention was a white man, someone who was free enough and who was presumed to have a soul that was capable of redemption. But if we move to the second wave of solitary confinement and look at the way that Black, Latino, and Latina, and Indigenous resistance movement builders were targeted for behavior modification, then we can also see how many of the techniques in the third wave, the incapacitation of people, the management of a population, derive not so much from the early penitentiary system and more from the ethos of extreme control and domination that structures the Southern prison system. 
So the U.S. prison system isn't just one homogeneous thing. There are local, regional histories that I think are really important to take into account to see those links between slavery and mass incarceration or the hyper-incarceration of Black people and other racialized people in the U.S. Lisa Gunther. And that was part of a longer conversation where we brought Lisa together with the writer and former prisoner, Shokafei Saki. We'll be hearing from Shokafei later in this episode, but it was such a powerful conversation that we have made the complete recording into a separate podcast, episode six. It really is an extraordinary listen. Hearing Lisa, I was struck by how, even at the outset, it was noted that prisoners in solitary confinement suffered mental illness. One of the witnesses to this earlier penitentiary system was Charles Dickens on a tour of America in 1842. I believe that very few men are capable of estimating the immense amount of torture and agony which this dreadful punishment, prolonged for years, inflicts upon the sufferers, and which no man has a right to inflict upon his fellow creature. I hold this slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture of the body, and because its ghastly signs and tokens are not so palpable to the eye and sense of touch as scars upon the flesh, because its wounds are not upon the surface, and it extorts few cries that human ears can hear, therefore the more I denounce it, as a secret punishment which slumbering humanity is not roused up to stay. Dickens is, of course, part of a long tradition of writers who have tried to depict the experience of imprisonment, both from without and from within the walls of the cell. In her new book, Poetry and Bondage, Andrea Brady has been thinking about the relationship between lyric poetry and incarceration, as well as writing that comes out of prisons. She spoke to us about the jail poems by the beat poet Bob Kaufman, written in San Francisco prison in 1959. I am sitting in a cell with a view of evil parallels, waiting thunder to splinter me into a thousand me's. It is not enough to be in one cage with oneself. I want to sit opposite every prisoner in every hole. Doors roll and bang every slam of finality. Bang! Kaufman was a African-American writer from New Orleans who joined the Merchant Marines and moved to San Francisco and lived in North Beach, where he was a real character. People describe him walking up to cars and reciting his poems, also reciting them uh, standing on the table in the bagel shop. And in some ways, Kaufman's erasure from the Beat generation is probably a reflection of race, and Kaufman really makes a race and the thematics of the African-American experience of jazz um, very much part of his poetry. Kaufman's experience is distinct from the Beats in that he also suffered not just from episodes of mental illness and the consequences of that in terms of treatment in asylums, electric shock treatment and so forth, that also affected um, some of the other poets of that generation. But he also was subjected to a particularly racialized forms of, of violent abuse. So according to Maria Damon, when he was 13, he was hung up by his thumbs in an ice house all night by a lynch mob. And it's also well known that he was arrested something like 35 times in one and a half years in the early 60s. 
So the jail poems come out of that experience. It's a sequence of numbered poems. Many of them are kind of aphoristic. And they describe a subject that is in danger of flying apart and in a condition of really extreme psychic stress. Uh, they open, I'm sitting in a cell with a view of evil parallels waiting thunder to splinter me into a thousand me's. And so that splintered self is both the self that is subject to the intense pressure of incarceration, but it's also an opportunity for a kind of solidarity, having relinquished attachment to the fiction of individual subjectivity. And the poem goes on, it is not enough to be in one cage with oneself. I want to sit opposite every prisoner in every hole. So there's a recognition that prison is not just the one institution in San Francisco. It is um, not even just the carceral regime of white supremacist um, state violence that you find across the United States. It is actually an existential condition. And this is another thing that is kind of speaking to some of Kaufman's Buddhist beliefs of a not-self, of the disintegration of the self. But in the jail poems, he's also talking very specifically about the spectacle of the great American windmill tilting at itself and seeing the prison as a, a scene in that spectacle of the deranged, punitive violence of America. And in some ways, Kaufman's poems um, speak to traditions of solitude that can either famously, as Aristotle said, turn you into a beast or into a god, right? That too much isolation was at risk of deranging the person, exposing them to dangerous desires and temptations. But for particular kinds of really gifted characters, it was also an opportunity for spiritual enlightenment. So the jail cell becomes almost like a, a hermit's cave. There have been too many years in this short span of mine. My soul demands a cave of its own like the Jane God. Yet I must make it go on, hard like jazz, glowing in this dark plastic jungle, land of long night, chilled. And that desire for uh, its own cave, for its own solitary space where it could experience through asceticism, it could experience spiritual enlightenment, really jangles against the actual conditions that Kaufman is paying witness to in the sequence of poems. So he speaks in rather blunt terms about a defective on the floor, mumbling, was once a man who shouted across tables. And this is almost a depiction potentially of another prisoner, but also of himself, because Kaufman was himself someone who once shouted across tables. So there's a very harrowing quality to the poems and their mixture of both a questing for enlightenment through asceticism and through, through solitude, through an identification with the uh, other people who are held in the jail, and then also a kind of furious set of distinctions that are being drawn between the poet as someone who has achieved a kind of critical and enlightened perspective on the catastrophe of America and the other people that he finds around him. And it culminates in Kaufman's assertion, someone whom I am is no one, something I have done is nothing, someplace I have been is nowhere, I am not me. 
And so he's taking this kind of Rambodian expression of alienation. Rambo, remember, famously says, je et un autre, um, I am another, and turning the anthemic statement of the of black liberation, I am somebody, into an equivalence between himself, someone who I am, and is no one. Someone whom I am is no one. Something I have done is nothing. Some place I have been is nowhere. I am not me. So, I am no one. Something I have done is nothing. And that negation is offers a kind of really powerful antithesis, I think, to the liberal tradition, which describes prison lyric as evidence that the human subject endures even in the most depraved conditions. I guess what Kaufman's poems lead us to ask is, what is enduring in those conditions? Who is enduring? Kaufman alleges that the who that is at the center of the prison is no one, is nothing. It has been annihilated. And it's ambivalent whether that nothing and that no one are creatures who have been released from the trap of samsara or someone who have been ground down and, and annihilated by the repressive regime of American carcerality. Andrea Brady. Shokafe Saki was arrested when she was just 18 years old in Iran in 1982. She was detained for eight years and a considerable part of that time was spent in solitary confinement. At one point, she was made to sit in a kind of small plywood box or cubicle that the prison director nicknamed the Graves. What does solitary confinement do? It breaks relations. Uh, not only to other humans, but other, to other aspects of life or existence of the world. All of this uh, being reduced. So one way is actually to keep those relations alive. I remember uh, myself that when being locked in into a cell, uh, just standing in the middle of the cell by myself, I, I looked around and looked at the walls and I looked at the walls, seeing the walls, having encountered so many other people before me. It's a space that people, other people like me have been here. And just by imagining that, that other people have lived there, walked that little space, five feet by five feet, by uh, five steps or by three steps space, and I'm walking there, I, I created a bonding with the people who were there before. I saw their traces on the walls, any scratch, any writings, anything else. Finding space for relating, for relations through your past, through my memories, through uh, sensing the ground under me, actually, it extends beyond my walls. It extended into the 
other side of the walls that somebody else was standing on it. It extended to the other side and other side to the to the words that other people, there were hundreds of prisoners were standing on it. So I could extend that ground into my home and having feeling, sensing and relating to my parents, my one-year-old son walking on that ground. It's that active and deliberate. It comes as a need, but then it becomes active and deliberate ability to keep that connection with the rest of the world alive. And I suppose one thing, you know, people often think about with solitary confinement is sort of these long periods of nothingness. And did you find that these kinds of active, deliberate thoughts were what filled up those sort of long, long stretches of time of sort of nothing but being in that situation. Yes, and you know what? It always bothers me when I watch a movie and they try to show solitary confinement and it's as if nothing. You're just sitting there completely desperate and the only sense or emotion they can show is anger or uh, an out-of-control anger or nothing. As, as it, but it's not right because you live there, and people who haven't been there, they can't even imagine, or probably they can't sense it. That yes, there is a whole life is happening there in that space. It's uh, it looks from the outsider, it's nothing. They only see it's an empty cell with one person walking there or just sitting there. But there is a world. We have our own world. That's the thing. They try to take our our world away. Solitary confinement, sensory deprivation, is an attempt to remove a person from the existence, from the world. But we have a past. We have an imagination for a future. We had a world. That world is within us. There's sort of, obviously, it goes without saying, really incredible suffering that we've covered in this conversation. Um, but also, I think, stories of remarkable creative strategies that prisoners like yourself, Shokafe, have found to make something of their experience, often without any resources or very little resources. Um, I'm thinking of things, stories that I've sort of been reading about prepping for this interview, like prisoners painting with their hair and all these ways of writing and communicating the ingenuity and spirit in the face of, of torture and to make a sort of social world despite everything being against creating that world. I wondered if you have any sort of particular moments or examples that are particularly inspiring. Favorite is hard to say. There were lots of things. (laughs) We would like uh, dig um, in a time that they had for fresher, dig out the piece of stone from the cement or from any corner of any wall, any things that you could find. And then uh, working on that piece of stone, beautiful artifacts, prisoners created just uh, by um, carving on the stones, turning a coin into rings. And we would undo, unravel our our uh, socks and things just to create something out of it, something art- something beautiful. You know, creating beauty was illegal in my prison. Uh, and it, all of this had to happen secretly. And secretly, we had to we would smuggle them out. All of these creating beauty were, were resistance and were 
they gave us all uh, power, empowering um, and connection with life. Um, we uh, we have our own Morse codes and uh, Morse codes for communication between cells uh, or ways of communication between the graves, uh, sending signals by playing with light, with, uh, with sound, with uh, touch. We only could have, uh, for example, in the graves, I could have a little bit of a touch feeling, the touch of somebody on the in the other side of my my wall. There was a gap that she could touch my toe, and by that touching the toe, I could we could uh, have uh, through Morse code communications. So that's why I'm saying it's it's a world that you could find different ways of relating to. Other beings. Uh, one of my friends in in the graves was a mosquito. So the beauty of seeing the mosquito, for example, sucking my blood and its belly gets red, I, it was fascinating. <laughs> Shokafei Saki, and you can hear more about Shokafei's story as well as the entire conversation between herself and Lisa in episode six. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude Project, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust and hosted by Queen Mary University of London. It was presented by me, Hetta Howes, and produced by Natalie Steed. If you want to hear more episodes, just search for Solitude's Queen Mary on SoundCloud or to find our website. There you can discover much more about our project and read our blog posts on solitude during the pandemic and many other topics.